Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Please join me in welcoming tonight's guest, author of History of a Pleasure Seeker, Volume 1, Richard Mason. Hi, everyone. Good night. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Wow, it's great to see such a crowded house. Um, and it's great to be at the Apple Store. <laughs> this adventure started in a completely different kind of place uh, on a hillside in rural South Africa with no electricity and no running water. I'll tell you about that in a sec. But to be here in uh, New York at the Apple Store is a great treat. Thank you guys very much for having me. Um, they even provided me with a banana five minutes ago because uh, I was a little hungry. I felt weird ordering a banana in the Apple Store, but they were happy to provide. Um, I guess I should begin by saying that actually, in many ways, I'm totally old school. Uh, I wrote History of a Pleasure Seeker uh, by hand um, in a book with just a pen. And I did it because, because I think that too many books are too long. And Microsoft Word encourages wordiness because novelists can all now type. Um, I include books that I've written in that judgment. And I read this amazing book, which I take this opportunity to recommend if you haven't read it, uh, Sweet Francaise by Irene Nemirovsky. Uh, it's totally unlike History of a Pleasure Seeker in all its, uh, its subject matter, but it just grabs you right from the moment you pick it up. You can't put it down. It's concise and quick, pulls you into its world. And I thought after I read it, I want to write like that. And I looked at the way she'd written it, and of course she wrote it, it was written in 1942, in a book by hand. And so I thought that's what I'm going to do with this book. And so in a way, the creation of the actual story was totally low tech. Uh, it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, it's sort of like the end of season one of a TV show. And uh, the next book picks up the character's adventures. And they take place in South Africa. And uh, I went to South Africa. I'm a big believer in taking yourself out of your study in throwing yourself into real life because strange things happen in real life that you could never possibly imagine. And uh, the central character of History of a Pleasure Seeker is a guy called Pete Barol. His future adventures happen in rural South Africa in the early 20th century. So uh, I went to live in rural South Africa for a year uh, with no electricity, no running water. Uh, built myself a little tent uh, with a, the community of Mtwaku. We set up a rural business school because uh, I wanted to get, I wanted to get the experiences that I needed to write the book, and I'm a South African too. I wanted to do something uh, in rural South Africa, um, and so I'd spent ten months there, and then I came to New York for a wedding, and uh, somebody put an iPad into my hand for the first time, <laughs> and I have to say it was like being catapulted a uh, hundred years into the future because <laughs> I hadn't even had electricity for a year, and suddenly here was the iPad. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And I knew the second I saw it that I had to make some work with this amazing new device that made so many things possible. Um, for my last book, I write a lot about music and real places and real history. Uh, for my last book, Natural Elements, I wanted my publishers to issue a CD with a hardcover. But actually, that was totally impractical. And um, um, so yeah, I saw an iPad. I thought I've absolutely got to make something with this because it wasn't practical really to sell a CD with a book 
Uh, and anyway, it wouldn't have been a great experience because you're in the point in the book, you want to listen to the music, you have to go and switch on a CD. The, hard, the hardware just wasn't there. And then Apple, thank you guys, just developed exactly the kind of piece of kit that I wanted to tell a story that I wanted to tell. So holding in my hands, I thought, I'm not going to go back to my tent right away. I'm going to make an app of History of a Pleasure Seeker. Uh, and that led me on a very interesting journey into the world of, world of coders. Um, I have to say, I have terrific, terrific admiration for coders. It is not easy to make the thing that I'm about to show you. And I know it's not easy because I watched them struggling to make it. Things like this page curl, which I'm subtly proud of. And this is a real little feat of maths. Um, and, and they're amazing, but coders are not storytellers. And they all grew up playing computer games. So when I decided I wanted to make one of these, I thought deeply about, you know, what's the key pleasure in the experience of reading? And throw it out to me. What is the key pleasure? Why do you read? I mean, is it the smell of the pages? But if it was just that, then no one would read an e-book, but plenty of people do. In fact, here, who reads e-books or iBooks? Quite a lot of the audience. And so for you guys, the pleasure can't just be the physical touch of a book, though we all love that. What's the key pleasure deep in reading? Escape? Any other questions? Page turning? I mean, I think we all have our own answers to that. I thought deeply about it, and I thought, it's the pleasure that comes from using your own imagination, collaborating with the author's imagination to create a world that is wholly yours. And just because the iPad is an amazing piece of kit and can do many things doesn't mean that you should do everything. Um, so pretty much the smartest thing that I did was to secure the services of Benjamin Morse as the interface designer. Benjamin knows absolutely nothing about tech, uh, but he has terrific taste and a strong sense of what he wants. And actually, I think why the app has gone down so well is because we were able to bridge tech and the humanities. And actually, that's, in a way, I guess, Apple's whole philosophy. And it's no coincidence that we were doing it on and for an Apple device. Um, we thought deeply about what should this experience be like. And we decided that the human imagination has to be the key collaborator throughout. So the iPad also lets you be wholly in charge of what the reading experience should be like. I do read a lot of iBooks. I actually love to read on my, on my iBook. It's very convenient. You can buy things whenever you like. You can tra I travel a lot, so I've got 500 books on this thing. We wanted to make a digital original uh, that looked like itself and nothing else. So I'm going to show you a little bit, and then I hope you'll ask me some questions. I'm eager to chat to you. Uh, I'm sorry some people are standing, but thanks very much. There are a couple of spaces if you want to push in. Um, so, History of a Pleasure Seeker, it starts in 1907, the height of the Gilded Age. A uh, handsome, charismatic young man, he's 24, is going to a job interview in a very glamorous house. Um, so, we took the decision that if you just want to read, that's a totally valid choice and you should be able to read. I can't bear technology that beeps at you and makes you do things. I hate cars that beep every time you reverse. I mean, presumably, if you weren't aware that there was a wall behind you, you shouldn't be driving a car. Um, we decided to, that the tech should be really seamless. Um, this is 19th century paper. 
All the illustrations are made by hand. You can just read it as a beautifully illuminated manuscript. As I said, we work quite hard on that page curl, which I sort of love. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and you can just read it. Um, then we just did a couple of things that I love to do when I'm hearing a story. I'm the youngest kid in my family. There's 11 years between me and my nearest sibling. And so by the time I came along, my parents were sick of reading to me. Uh, so I had a lot of books on tape, and I just love being read to. Um, and I thought, who should read this book? I'm going to tell you the conclusion I came up to. But first, I want to see whether uh, you can guess his voice. He sauntered down the Blaubergwall and crossed onto the Heerenkracht Canal. On both sides of the water, houses built for the magnates of the 17th century surveyed the world with the serenity that comes from surviving the upheavals of 300 years unscathed. Who's that? Anyone? Famous actor. Famous actor. It's Dan Stevens who plays Cousin Matthew in Downton Abbey. Um, who just does an absolutely amazing job of reading it. It was a pleasure to collaborate with Dan. Um, so if you want to be read to at any point, you can just tap the little gramophone icon at the bottom of the screen, and the Elon starts reading itself to you. He freshly laundered handkerchief over his mouth and inhaled deeply. You tap each paragraph canal, just to go there. As the house numbers increased, so did the emph... The appearance of a house with six windows. He sat down on a wrought iron also bench turn the between page. two trees and collected himself. He did not have the best credentials, but was wise enough to understand, even at 24, that symbols on paper are not the only grounds on which people make up their minds. So if you're reading um, and you're getting into bed, unfortunately, I'm in a lifelong relationship with somebody who doesn't like me to read at night, which I sometimes think is a little unfair because, you know, I used to read before we ever met. Anyway, uh, now, every time I get into bed and want to read, I'm slightly annoyed that my book won't just read itself to me from the place that I was at. Um, this illuminated app will do that. Uh, we thought a lot about what the imaginative experience should be like and what the interface should be like. Nothing about the page jumps out at you and tells you to tap it. Um, but equally, I talked to a lot, of, a lot of readers, and some people just want to imagine a book without any reference to anything else. But a lot of people, I think, want just a little bit of guidance. So who here has been to Amsterdam? Right, civilized crowd. At least half of you have been to Amsterdam. I urge the other half to go as soon as you possibly can. It's a great city. Um, but if you hadn't gone, or even if you had, the book starts with him walking to a job interview across the city. All these illustrations do something. So if you tap it, you see the street that he's walking along. But you're imagining him, how he's feeling, what the weather is doing. Uh, you might see some background people, but you never see a character. So the idea is that it just stimulates your imaginative experience. And something that I love, I don't know if you can see it, but you can control this image with your own finger. So I think it's this quite delightful experience of literally reaching through the page and exploring the world beyond, um, which I love. Uh, all these do something. What we found, though, so the action takes place in an amazing mansion in Amsterdam that really does exist. It's at Heerenkracht 605. It's that house. Um, and I imagine the slightly eccentric family that Pete Barol goes to work for. 
What we found is that if you only use archive images, so everything is in black and white, the story is a bit less vivid. So we actually went to Amsterdam and shot in color. On his way to the interview, he walks into a kitchen. In the book, it's full of people, but you'll just see the kitchen. So it's this new, quite interesting, imaginative experience where you're putting people into the scene, but your own imagination is always working. We're never trying to use technology to do the imagining for you because that would entirely spoil the point of a story. Um, it is a really beautiful house. Uh, so we got to show you a couple of others. Um, we got to shoot some great interiors. Um, and, and you can move them all. Um, for me, one of the most exciting things is that suddenly I can make you hear what the characters hear. Uh, Pete gets a job as tutor to a very troubled little boy um, called Ekbert. Ekbert's 10. His father is the, the best hotelier in the world. He's building the Plaza Hotel in New York. They live in a house of glamour and luxury. But this little boy, I think we diagnose him today as having OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. He's trapped in a world of patterns of black and white and light and dark. And they find expression in the music that he plays. He's, a, he's an obsessive pianist. And he plays a lot of J.S. Bach. I happen to think Bach is pretty crazy. Um, in order to reach his piano, Ekbert has to cross an entrance hall floor tiled in white and black marble. And he taps the tiles each morning in the same color sequence as a run by Bach. So when you're reading that, and you could read it now, you can also hear it. And we didn't buy a beautiful recording of Glenn Gould playing it. It's played like this child plays it in this crazy, repetitive, un-inexpressive way. In fact, the TV show is going to open with just a little boy playing this repeatedly. And you can imagine if he was your child and he played this 73 times without stopping, it would actually drive you crazy. Um, and in fact, everyone in the house is driven crazy by this kid. And Pete is hired to teach him how to behave like a normal boy. Um, so in order to do that, Pete has to demonstrate that he too can play the piano, but he's not really as good as Eckbert. Uh, but he does have some other um, talents. He has a real and instinctive understanding of human nature and a real appreciation of beauty. He walks into this house. He comes from a very lower middle class background, and he thinks, whatever it takes, I must live here. I must get this job. So he's interviewed by Jakobina von Molensickets, who is Eckbert's mother. She's 48 and uh, she hasn't had sex for 10 years. <laughs> Pete doesn't know this entirely, but there's something about her that makes him suspect that her sensual appetites are not well catered for. Uh, and so she takes him into, into a room and he has to play the piano for her, and he decides what to play. Um, and he remembers his mother telling him that the only key for love is E-flat major. So he decides to play a Chopin nocturne. Now, I can describe a Chopin nocturne to you. In fact, I learned to play one in order to write this scene. But because Chopin himself is such a genius, you can't describe a genius. Someone who's a real genius just has to be demonstrated. So if the book is reading itself to you, you'll hear the music. Nina Barol's edition marked this piece, Espressivo Dolce, to be played sweetly and expressively. And if it's uh, 
if you're reading it, you hear the whole piece of music. Um, I'm just going to read you one paragraph. It's the only bit of reading from the text I'll do tonight. So Pete's playing it in a very warm room while this very attractive woman in her late 40s is watching him. He was correct. It was many years since anyone had touched Mrs. Vermolen's sickets with the aim of giving her pleasure. Jacobina had almost ceased to mourn this sad fact, but in the presence of such a beautiful young man, it struck her forcefully. She stepped closer to see him better. Pete's face was manly but graceful, with succulent red lips that prompted thoughts of her husband's dry little kisses. Jacobina looked away. <laughs> um, and I just love that experience of hearing the music that's in a scene. To me, it takes you very deeply into the experience. And again, that was actually my only musical contribution to the, to the uh, app. And Pete makes a mistake. So you hear the mistakes. It's not just a perfectly recorded or a perfectly bought recording. It's a piece of music that's meant to be as it actually is in the book. I got to work with some amazingly talented musicians. Um, Alex Richardson, one of the best young tenors in America. Uh, Spencer Meyer, one of the best young pianists in America. He's just won the New Orleans piano competition. What was exciting about this whole project was how excited other artists got. Not only writers, but actors, musicians, pianists. Um, Pete sings, and he will often choose to play a piece of music in order to create an atmosphere in a room or to, um, to communicate with somebody listening to him. So when he plays, you hear it. And again, we didn't just buy a recording because then you'd hear it with an orchestra. You hear a young man singing, playing a piano in a room. And when you're actually plugged in, you can hear that acoustic, that it is a room. It's not a recording studio. right into it. I love it. Um, he also does an amazing rendition of Luceva Listella by, uh, from Tosca, which I can't show you because it happens at a key plot moment and it'll spoil the book for you if it's up on the screen. But he really, it's like the most beautiful recording I've ever heard of it. Um, so that's basically what the Elim does. Um, there is a... Everything else is in this drop-down menu. Uh, and again, it's kind of based a little on what I wish I could do when I read a book. Often when I'm reading a book, I want to ask the author a question. So you can ask me a question. Ask me one of these. Why the Belle Epoque? Why Amsterdam in the Belle Epoque? I think it's important not just to imagine the things that you write about. You have to experience them as much as possible for yourself. And if you're going to go and live in one city and, and write a novel set there, Amsterdam's got to be pretty high on your list of choices. So uh, you get to really see, sort of like the DVD extra section, what it was like to write a book. Um, you can also ask me questions in real time. So if you're connected to a, a Wi-Fi network, just ask me on Twitter or Facebook. And actually, for me as a writer, that's really fascinating because it's interesting to know the questions that people ask you as they're reading your book. Um, another thing we did, I write a lot of uh, historical fiction, 
and I write about historical events that maybe people haven't necessarily known about before. I mean, part of this book takes place in a, the huge financial crash of uh, 1907, which had a lot to do with what's just happened. I mean, the stock market was, uh, was in a tailspin, and instead of going to Wikipedia, because that's what I always do, if I'm reading a book and it sort of touches an interesting topic I want to know more about, I go to Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is great. I'm a huge supporter of that site, but you're getting a lot of other people's opinions. It might not be exactly tailored to the experience. So in the app, if you want to know about the banking panic of 1907, you can just read an essay that was written for the app by uh, an academic at Yale, um, which is kind of cool. And you don't ever see the full versions of the images in the text, but I thought people probably would want to at some point. So you can see them. But these, um, you can't just race ahead. They won't unlock. You have to have actually read the book. The point is, and what I, I'd be really interested to see, I hope some of you guys will download this, I'd love you to read it. You know, the temptation with an app is to look at all its tricks. We try to avoid tricks and avoid gimmicks and let the story speak for itself. And a lot of other writers I've shown it to have been quite inspired to make work in this form. And, uh, and I'm really excited to share it with them. And I think it's because a, a writer designed it and it's meant to take you deeper into a story. It's not just a showy piece of coding. Uh, you can make notes. When you've uh, made them, you can send them. I love to make notes. I annotate all my books all the time. Um, you can save them. You can share it. And you can also uh, email me on Twitter and Facebook uh, and ask me more questions, or indeed uh, send me insults as you wish. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that's all it does. So thank you so much for coming. And now I'm going to sit down and hope that somebody might bring me some water and uh, happily answer your questions. This is always a slightly scary part of the night when you think you're looking out at a vast sea of faces and you think, who's going to ask me a question? Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, Richard, I noticed when the questions, the bottom two were not supposed to be asked until you had finished the book. That's right. I, when I, you know, I, I did the app and I read the book, but I didn't ask the, ask the questions. So tell me why that is. Well, you know, sometimes you want to talk about an interesting plot moment, um, but if you spoke about it without anyone having read the story, it would spoil it for them. So those last two, they are, I, one of them is, do you believe in magic? And funny things happened when I wrote this book. I'll give you one example that's not my answer to the question. Um, when I write about a period, I get very deep into it, and sometimes I find that I can make eerily accurate predictions. So we see the, the Plaza Hotel being built. Um, the scene of its opening, husband and wife are having a fight, and she doesn't want to tell her husband why she's so annoyed with him. Uh, but she's conscious of behaving a little badly, so in order to atone, she, makes, uh, she ensures that the first name in the visitor's book is Vanderbilt. And I just made that up. And a couple of years later, I was at a party at the plaza, and they have a big blow up of the first page of the first visitor's book, and the first name actually is Vanderbilt. Uh, so all those things sort of happened in the writing of the book. And when they do happen, you think, 
maybe I'm on, I'm on the right track. But if I told you what they were before you'd read it, it would spoil it. Uh, what I'd love to do, actually, if you'll let me, is bring our brilliant interface designer, Benjamin, up onto stage two, because you might have some good questions for him. Thank you. Hi. I'm a little challenged on the uh, technology side. I didn't quite understand how how does the music start. I mean, if you're in, do you have to touch the, that right. ref or something? If you're just reading, it's a good question. And actually, one of the interesting so things we had to answer is how do you tell people how to use it? Because nobody wants to start a story with a user's manual. So, I mean, we thought about that quite a lot, didn't we? Yeah, we, we've seen ebooks and uh, enhanced ebooks that have a, a user video that starts with some model, you know, like turning a page and looking really interested in it. It, it seemed so false and distracting from what we were trying to create. So, we, um, we just tell people on the first page, and you tap the illustration to look into the story. And that sets you up. So if you're on the very first page, you would tap that, and you would know that things lie behind it. And I think maybe not the very first time you pick up an iPad, but once you've used it a few times, you just get used to tapping things. I mean, that is what the touchscreen device implies. So um, by the time you got to the first musical illustration, you would see it had little uh, G-clef signs and things, and you would be tempted. And also, if you were, if you were just listening to the narration, the music would automatically come up. Yeah, when the, when the app is reading itself to you, all the music is mixed into it. Um, and if you're reading yourself, you tap it and you hear the complete piece of music. Uh, and I love that. I mean, we're, we're making some amazing apps of other people's work. And it's just great to hear, you know, a rapper or, uh, you know, some music from the 16th century. It really, I think it takes you really deeply into the scene. Hi, can you talk a little bit about how you found the people who coded that beautiful page slip at Flip Magic, and how if it was one person or many people, and how you knew they would be able to do what you wanted them to do? Right. Well, actually, can I answer that one? Because what Be Benjamin did the design, and then he made me collaborate and communicate with the coders. I mean, he did a good job too, but I was sort of the one who had to, I guess, do what writers have to be good at doing, which is imagine what life is like for people who are not like you. I mean, writers tell stories, so our minds kind of work in this very sort of fluid way. Coders are also artists because there's no one way of doing anything. Um, However, they're extremely logical, and they need to go in a very ordered progression through things. We interviewed a lot of coders uh, in a number of different cities, and, uh, and in the end, we ended up putting together our own team of really passionate people. This page curl thing, I said right at the beginning, I want it to be very sensuous and responsive. I mean, that is the great thing of the iPad, that it really can respond to human touch like this. Um, so, but coders, have a sort of you know, margin of error. If it's almost right, that's fine. Except I'm a crazy perfectionist, so almost right. And, and if I'm a crazy perfectionist, Benjamin is just an unbelievably <laughs> off-the-scale uh, mad professor, crazy perfectionist. Um, and uh, so margin of error doesn't really work in this context. So they started by, it was animated. So the first ones kind of went, um, like this across the screen, but always in the same 
um, movement. And I said, no, that's not what a turning a page is like. So then we animated, we started with 13 animations, then 45 animations. By the time we got to 73, it was much smoother, but it still didn't look like turning a book. Um, and at this point, we could have just launched a thing because it was not an, a terrible page curl. Um, but I think both of us wanted to do it right. And it's a book about central pleasures and fine things. We thought it was important to do it right. So we said, no, that's not going to work. And any more animations actually start to make the, the page crash, because each page has memory issues if there's so many animations. So went round and round. And eventually, I suddenly saw, I saw how coders are like writers. In many ways, we're totally different. But because each of us are trying to make a whole world, you know, this app coded from scratch is its own little code universe in just the same way as a novel is. And I suddenly saw that what's true of writing is also true of coding, that sometimes, and it's totally counterintuitive, you need to try less hard. If you just try, if you're too focused on a problem, you actually can't think fluidly enough to solve it. So instead of putting a ton of pressure on them, because they were really staying late at the office, <laughs> one guy, <laughs> I shouldn't really tell this, maybe I will. He like, literally stayed at his desk in physical agony, didn't tell anyone he was in such bad state, while he passed a kidney stone <laughs> because he was so concerned with doing it right. Um, obviously, if I'd known that he was passing kidney stone, I would have strongly encouraged him to, to leave the office. Um, but you know, it's sort of true of the whole spirit of this. Like We all threw ourselves into it. Um, you know, we, we all really tried, and definitely he did. And eventually, I just said, look, go away. Like, wander around the park, go to a movie, do whatever you do to, to chill out. And I bet you that the answer will come to you. And then two things happened. Apple did a nifty little improvement of its iOS. And he suddenly cracked it. And he said, here it is. And this is entirely sensuous. Responds, I mean, I love this. And weirdly, this is the thing I'm most proud of in a curious way. So you put your nail finger right on the nail with a good question. Thanks. <laughs> I have a lot of things I'm more proud of in the app than that, but it is beautiful. Hi. Um, now that you've made this illumination, will you change the way you write your books in the future? Will yeah, you write them in exactly the same way? Or? That's a great question. Um, I'm going to continue to write them by hand, but actually, I'm really excited by this new form. You know, the Knopf published the hardcover of History of a Pleasure Seeker. It's in paperback. It's an e-book. Uh, we call this an e-loom for illuminated app. I really feel that devices like this one make it possible for artists and storytellers to start to experiment with a new form. Um, and I love it. I feel it's so fluid. My new book, which continues Pete's adventures, they take place in rural South Africa amongst the Kosses, whose language is it's full of these big clicks. So, it would be impossible for any of you to know what a closer conversation is like if you're just reading the book. But in the Elum, when you see somebody's name, you can tap on it and hear how it's really pronounced. Or you can hear characters talking. As I said, I, I write a lot about historical events. And you know, it's one thing, if you write about the Second World War, you can assume that most of your audience knows pretty much what you're talking about. Uh, I tend to write about things that are a little more off the beaten track. And so, the new book, for example, takes place in South Africa, 1913. In 1913, the government passed a land act that confiscated 14 15ths of the country for the use of whites only. 
And that was on the statute books until 1994. I mean, it's just unbelievable. In a regular book, given that most of you guys probably don't know that, a character would have to say, it's really terrible, you know, the government yesterday just confiscated 14 15 of the landmass. Um, whereas in an Elum, they could just have the conversation they'd have and there can be a little essay about it. So that I love. And the, the next one is going to be, it's all shot in a forest. It'll look completely unlike this. Um, you'll hear lots of folk music and... Uh, yeah, so to answer your question, it's absolutely affecting the way that I, that I tell and make stories. This question is uh, for Ben. Um, before when Richard said he was most proud of the page crow, and you said there were a lot more things uh, that you were more proud of in the uh, Elum, I guess it's, t it's uh, two questions. Um, what's the thing you're most proud of in the Elum, and what was the most difficult aspect of the design? Well, you know, there's subtle little things like that um, the illustrated border um, comes, the, the primary illustrations on the page actually come from an old French architectural catalog that I found in the Stra uh, Strand Rare Books room, uh, completely by chance um, or fate. And um, the, that, that ornamental border, there was just a corner piece of it. So I had to create you know, a continuous piece around it and connect it so it seemed like a seamless, a seamless flow. And um, I'm quite proud of that. And I'm quite proud of, of throughout the story, it's, you know, I didn't want to do, um, I didn't want to be too literal with the illustration. I wanted it to be, a, uh, often have these sort of intuitive question, uh, intuitive collect, uh, connections between these primary illustrations, we call them, the illustrations you see on the page and then what you see behind them. So, you know, if, if, the, if they're talking about the piano or something, I don't want to have a piano, you know, but we had something in the room or like, you know, like a grill or something and then connecting that to something behind it. So that is a bathroom scene. There's a famous scene in the story about what he does in the bathtub. But, um, you know, so I'm quite proud of the intuitive aesthetic connections that were made and I think there's a graceful flow. We didn't overload it. We put quite a few illustrations in the first few pages so that people know they're there and they set the scene. But you know, you're not, you're, again, you're not overly distracted by illustration. And I feel like I, I'm probably most proud of the fact that we hit a very delightful balance. And uh, you know, I had to test this several times and sit and read through and experience and hear the whole thing and make sure every paragraph was synced and really, you know, there's a bit halfway through where the young boy has this breakthrough on the piano and the piece of Chopin he plays. Um, it's just one of the most poetic pieces of uh, humanity. It's just such an expression of, of beauty. And, um, and I really, that, that moment of testing it, and believe me, there were many hours of work that went into getting to that point, I finally really felt like we had made an important contribution to culture. So. And it was that kind of crazy effort. I mean, every detail, it ended up being like a big piece of conceptual art that a lot of people collaborated on. All the, all the musicians really read the book, thought a lot about the characters, how they played them. Um, Benjamin considered every illustration. Uh, and, and what's cool about it now is because people can write to me about it. I see that there are people who really get it. 
you know, who don't just kind of open it, look at the cool things it does, and then put it aside, but actually read the story in this new form and have a really rich experience with it. Hi, it's a question for Richard. Um, did you find, once you started to implement your ideas and the tools that the app could provide, did it change any of your plot points or any of the storyline in any way? Yeah, that's quite interesting. Um, so the book was already written before I decided to make an app, um, but we didn't have a terrifically large budget for all the production. So the only things that changed was sometimes we'd found, we found an amazing study. Uh, and there's a study in the book. And uh, in the book, the study has green wallpaper, but the study we found had lemon wallpaper. So we changed it. Uh, and poor Dan, who'd already read the audio, had to like read it again. <laughs> That's a kind of obsessive level of detail. Uh, so sometimes we'd change a color on a wall because of what we'd found. We obviously couldn't uh, create the sets from scratch. Uh, but otherwise, it was, it was exactly as it is. Uh, and we didn't abbreviate it either. You know, it's every word. Hi, I guess this is a question for both of you. But I'm really curious to know if you shared you know, the creation of the app or, or the end result with children and how they responded. Young readers. Well, um, this is a very adult book. <laughs> you could only share certain some, scenes You might with share the, <laughs> up to about page 10, and then it gets a little bit advanced. But thank you for asking that question. I have made an illustrated children's Old Testament that is the next app we're going to be developing. And uh, it's illustrated by a wonderful British actress named Alison Hancock. And I made all the illustrations through collage over eight and a half years of my life. And uh, that will be ready in the spring. It's called The Oldest Bedtime Story Ever, written and illustrated by Benjamin Morse. And it's amazing. It's really amazing. She's got this beautiful low voice. So when God speaks, it's actually the voice of a woman, but a very low, wonderful voice. She reads it so well. It's great. Well, that's going to do it for tonight. Guys, join me in thanking our guests again.